I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm hanging out today in Los Angeles with Simon Reynolds, uh, the best-selling author, entrepreneur, and high-performance coach to CEOs and thought leaders worldwide. Simon, it's great to see you. It's fantastic to see you. It's been and, a while. And I didn't mention we're also great friends, although you don't normally put that in your title. Uh, but you, you probably the greatest speech I think you ever gave was actually at um, at my wedding in. Uh, uh, and the deserts outside Saudi Arabia. Indeed, and I was probably more <laughs> nervous for that. In fact, I had about six minutes of enjoyment of the whole wedding because I was ridiculously going out into the desert sands and rehearsing your speech. Which is a very dangerous thing to do if you know that those desert sands because people actually just don't come back. <laughs> well, I certainly felt like <laughs> being one of those people about 10 minutes before my speech. But, no. uh, you know, it was a great event, a great marriage. And uh, pretty good food. <laughs> so listen, I've been wanting to have you as a guest for some time. And uh, of course, you know, I've read many of your books over the years. Uh, probably my favorite, I think, is still the uh, Better Than Chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> but your most recent book, you know, which has been on all the best-selling lists is, uh, of course, is Why We Fail. Why People Fail, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so before we get on to that... Uh, and I, I'm glad I didn't introduce you as an expert in failure. Uh, but you have had an amazing and interesting career, uh, which really began with you being one of the youngest uh, top creative directors uh, in the advertising world. It was at the tender age of 21. 21, that's right. So how, how did that happen? How, how do you end up being a top creative director when most people are still, still at school? Well, one of the good things about advertising is you don't have to do a degree to get into it. And in fact, I hated school so much uh, that the criteria I had for what my career would be, would be how do you make money without going to university? So right. there is simple 18 year old. I could only think of three occupations where you could do that that were legal. One was real <laughs> estate, one was stockbroking, and one was advertising. Right. And so I thought, well, which of these do I want to do? Advertising looks like uh, the most fun. And uh, I started um, uh, investigating and ended up in advertising. So by the time I was 21, whereas most people have not even graduated from university, I'd been in business for three years. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, the opportunity came to, to go for a job as a creative director. And I, I started to, to call different companies and suggest that they replace their current creative director with, with me. And the first guy <laughs> kicked me you, out did, of that. Did you actually just open with that? Yeah, I said, I'd like to have a meeting with you to the, to the CEO of the company. And I'd get in there and I'd say, I should, re I should replace your creative director for this and this <laughs> and this reason. So the first guy got rid of me very quickly. And then the second guy was bizarrely really interested. He probably didn't like his creative director. Exactly right. And he was paying an obscene amount of money. And I said, look, I'll, I'll do it for three quarters of an obscene amount of money. And so he was saving money as well. And at 21, I was creative director of Gray, which is the uh, Sydney office of a very large multinational agency, yeah. now owned by WPP. And uh, yes, that's when all the fun started. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I don't know if I told you this, but when I was about that age, I actually saw you speak. 
I think I was 18 uh, and I was still at school and I remember you talking um, about Professor Nakamats uh, <laughs> who came up you know with the idea of the CD while holding his breath at the bottom of the swimming pool and I remember just like who is this guy <laughs> you not Nakamats yes of course yeah 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 <laughs> um, but, but, but I think that you know one of the, the amazing things about the ad industry in Australia in the 80s was that it, it was really this this kind of it was the epicenter of creativity uh, of almost all the industries yeah it um since then, the the budgets have gone up, but the freedom has gone down. There's there's now just a handful, maybe five conglomerates that own most of the most of the agencies, and so there's a whole lot of financial conditions put upon them. But back back then, yes, they you you had money to create stuff, and you had clients that would allow you to create stuff. So it was a real real kind of renaissance period in in world advertising that um, uh, was just, you know, bore fruit to some of the most incredible work ever done. Yeah. Um, when, I, when I first saw you, uh, I remember being utterly puzzled by what seemed to be a spelling mistake in your name. It took years and many uh, martinis for me to persuade you to actually tell me the story. Yeah. Uh, which I'm now going to ask you to do in public. Yes, of course. <laughs> Thanks for that privacy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I spell my name. S double I M O N, and and this was before domain names. So it wasn't even a search optimization. Yes, no, absolutely, absolutely. And really, what happened was I I knew this Chinese numerologist soothsayer, so she could tell you the future of anybody based on on the spelling of their name. Right. And so I literally would get people that I knew and say and put them on a phone with her. And, and she would, having didn't even know who was at the end of the line, just their name, she would tell them precisely what they were like. And she and, couldn't Google their name back then either. Back then, no, 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 absolutely. And so she did it with such accuracy that I thought there must be something to this. And she said, well, there's a power behind everybody's name. And that power is either supporting them or not, or it's giving them character traits. Right. So people of a certain name often have similar character traits, she said. And it all adds up to a certain number. Anyway, uh, it was all pretty persuasive when you're, when you're 18 and desperate to be successful. And she said, look, if you put an extra I in your name, you'll be famous and you'll be successful. And I remember doing it at my first, uh, the first place of work that I was at. And it was embarrassing to tell people that I had two eyes. You see, now, now it's decades later and people are used to the concept and a lot of people are now giving their kids weird names. What do you mean people name their kids after Games of Thrones characters? Yeah. So, I mean, it's always passe, adding an extra, an extra vowel. Yeah, that's right. But back then, it was outrageous. Hmm. And people often say, did you do that for branding? And I can tell you at age 18, I just had no concept of that that could be a branding device. I did it for numerology. And who knows if it worked, but uh, I believe it. So maybe that's well, how it's that clearly one. worked because you've, you've become very successful. And uh, so what happened? I mean, at some point you decided to leave the ad industry uh, and, and, and sort of go more into technology investing and, and coaching. Yeah, sure. Well, look, I was very fortunate that in uh, 2000, I set up uh, a company with one of the richest people in Australia, Reg Grundy, and he uh, uh, put in the initial five million for that, but very quickly a lot more money. In, and um, we built a conglomerate, a conglomerate which we ended up, I think, at age said it was either the 14th or 15th biggest marketing services company in the world with 6,000 staff, uh, 54 companies, 14 countries. Uh, and uh, and valued it over half a billion dollars when I left in, in late 2007. So at that point, 
I could do one of two things. I could either open another company or I could just kind of kick back a bit. And I wanted to not have a whole lot of staff, but I wanted to do something that was intellectually taxing. And so the thought of coaching rising entrepreneurs and, and top CEOs on how to be better, which is a passion of mine, I thought was, was a great thing to do. And, and it's been fantastic because you, you live the life you want. Uh, it's not like you have a, a, a client with $20 million that you have to bow down to. You've just got entrepreneurs and CEOs that are, that are highly motivated and it's in, incredibly fulfilling. So what led to the inspiration to your most recent book? Why people fail? Well, I just always thought that it's ridiculous that it, when you go to the bookstores, every second book's about success. Mm. And you've achieved an enormous amount in, in your career, and I think you, you'd agree that. What people don't talk about is all the problems they made, all the dumb mistakes they made, all the errors they made, the personality flaws, etc., etc., etc. These are sometimes talked about, but rarely. And then when they are talked about, they're often glossed over and finessed to the point where, where the person still looks good. So you read these uh, tales of them <laughs> in Inc. or Fast Company, and you go, that, this person's a legend. Yeah. And yet when you find out the truth about them, or you get them drunk enough, and they tell you the truth, what you see is that the reality is that even the best people in the world are failing constantly, that failure for any ambitious person is their constant companion. And success is only occasional. Every, they, they go for something, they push, 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 fail, 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 and then maybe every couple of years they achieve that milestone, and then what do they do? They immediately start failing again, going for something bigger. So I thought, well, what we should completely uh, uh, change the outlook and start studying failure a lot more than success, and that's what Why People Fail is all about. Right, because successful people see failure not just as a learning lesson, but kind of an iterative process. That of which success is a random occurrence. 100%. Right. And, and I think that one of the best expressions for it is the leadership expert, John Maxwell. He says, he calls it failing forward. Mm. And I, I really love that because if <clears throat> you can just keep moving forward with continuous improvement and without loss of enthusiasm, as Winston Churchill said, he said success is, is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And I think that is just so true. Now, here's the problem, that the way the media is constructed to sell magazines or to sell stories, what they like to do is package a result. Oh, this person's 23, wear a hoodie and a t-shirt, and they're a billionaire. And they pump the publications full of these kind of stories. Now, you know, if you look at Stanford's research, 94% of internet startups do not return their original capital to their, their original investors and maintain the CEO. So the, CEO, if the, the number of companies where the CEO is even still there is 6%. Right. right? And, 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 and returning, returning the original capital. So these internet companies have massive degrees of failure, but the average person is bewitched and seduced by these magazine stories that these people apparently have fast success. Now, the truth is when you, uh, you know, and I think I've, I've spent longer than most people in the world studying the world's most successful people. I think the truth is that these people are anomalies. In the business world, almost everybody takes decades to be successful. And I'm in a kind of on a one-man mission to, to 
change, recalibrate people, uh, calibrate people's opinions about what it takes to be successful, because it takes an enormous amount of time usually, an enormous amount of work, and an enormous amount of mistakes. So you look at someone like Sam Walton. You know, when he died, he was the richest person on the planet. But seven years into Walmart, he only had two stores, hmm. and they weren't big stores. They were. He started out in the country. Uh, after twenty-five years, he only had thirty-two stores. After 25 years working in this business, now you go 32 stores, that's pretty good. Do, do you think, that's a, do you think that's a function of the, that world though? That now you're either big right away or you won't ever succeed? Like, do you think you can still build slow success? I, uh, not only do I believe it, I, I think it is the paramount way people still to this day build success. It just doesn't get as much PR. Right. So if you take technology... This is like, this is like the slow food. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you, yeah, you, totally. you are to success what the slow food movement is. Absolutely. Eating. <laughs> yeah. So if you look at the construction of the Forbes 400 even now, yeah. the vast majority of it is uh, people took 30 years to, to, to reach to get into that list. Now, they're not the ones that get the PR. It's the, it's the quick tech billionaires or the occasional hedge fund manager that does it in, say, only 10 years that gets, gets the PR. Still not the majority. Mm. And it never will be because success takes time. You can't build a, a, a decent structure without a lot of foundations. Mm. So tell me about some of the people that you've been working with. Uh, have there been any sort of unusual entrepreneurs that you, you're having to coach? Yes, yeah, good question. I mean, the type of people that contact me for coaching, uh, they can be very unusual in that they're on it. They're really on it. I, I don't get many people who say, uh, I'm, I'm useless, you've got to do something. And maybe it's because I'm, you know, uh, it's a little expensive to, to be mentored by me. But what you tend to have is people who are, who are doing very well uh, or have got a temporary glitch. Right. So I had one CEO of a public company in Australia contact me uh, basically because he'd been sacked because he didn't have people skills. And so he wanted to know, you know, some fast ways to acquire that. And he wanted to know what step, <laughs> what step he should take to, to move forward. Right. Or I had, you know, one entrepreneur who recently raised 100, 100 million actually. And uh, he was unbelievably organized, unbelievably motivated and unbelievably excellent as a business person. But the, you know, what got him there was being obsessed by uh, personal improvement. So he wanted to rise to, to another level. Huh. And then you might have someone who's just, uh, they might have a $1 million business and they, they want it to be a $10 million business. And all these people are, are very enjoyable. Do, do, do you find when you look at the mindset of people that the mindset of an entrepreneur is very different to a mindset of a successful CEO? Are, are they, are, what, what are the things that they have in common and what, what tends to distinguish them? That's a great question. And I, I think there's, there's definite uh, uh, differences. Commonalities are uh, self-confidence. Yeah. Self-confidence, in my opinion, is the number one character trait that is not talked enough in in business uh, degrees. You can go to Harvard, Harvard. You can go to Wharton. Uh, you, you know, you can go to the uh, London Business School. And where is the module on increasing your self confidence? Because if you look at uh, almost any successful CEO or entrepreneur, they have an inordinate amount of personal self confidence. Is it self talking or is it is it more like willful blindness? Uh, you look a great, a great, great point again. I think it's a combination of the two. You know, all, all of uh, say Martin Seligman's research at the University of Pennsylvania shows that optimists are more deluded than pessimists. Pessimists um, more accurately see 
the current conditions, but they're not nearly as successful. Right. In almost every field tested at University of Pennsylvania, except for law, by the way, um, Optimus always, uh, people who are confident in their own abilities, uh, they may be deluded, but they always outperform. Uh, in almost every profession. Hmm. So, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a combination of the two. So, first of all, self-confidence is a commonality. Second, secondly, is uh, urgency. So, there is an emotional component to their actions, and that is they have to get it done now. I have this to do it now. It'll be ready in three months. Can you do it in one week? Right. And, you know, it's, it's summed up by Ross Perot's great uh, aphorism that, you know, when, when asked why was he able to, to build not one but two Fortune 500 companies. In uh, he said, "Well, look, everybody uh, runs their life by ready, aim, fire. I run mine by ready, fire, aim, and and that is the truth." Well, you look at Kazuo Inamori, you know, uh, uh, twice Japan's Entrepreneur of the Year, uh, founder of two different Fortune 500 companies in two different industries. And he said, you have to prepare reserves, but act, act like you have no reserve. Mm. Well, you look at Frank Lowy, the number, you know, the guy who built the biggest shopping center empire in the world. And when asked why he succeeded, he said, we have a siege mentality. We, we, we're always behaving as if we're, someone's going to conquer us at yeah. any time. What is this? So these are like, like war leaders almost. Very much. And I think they have that paradigm a lot. Uh, and the, the reality is that um, unless you have that sense of urgency, then, then you're not going to, to succeed. The difference between a CEO and an entrepreneur is the entrepreneur can handle more uncertainty. Right. That's why they opened a business in the first place and the CEO chose not to. And it's why they can continue to work in a more uh, scrappy environment. See, what is a successful CEO? It's someone who's running a company that has got a series of systems that are mostly working. What is an entrepreneur? It's someone who's trying to achieve that. Right. So there's two different, two different styles of person. Yeah. And, and there's often that point, you know, when... Um Founders are no longer appropriate to take a company to its next level. And uh, there's this horrible meme going around the venture capital community that whether or not a CEO is coachable, a founder is coachable, yeah. uh, which is it's, it's almost a bit demeaning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, but, but it's a real thing, isn't it? That there's a stage in growth where systems are more important than just about putting out fires. Oh, 100%. You know, I was coaching a guy who's in the BRW 200, one of the uh, richest, uh, in the top 200 richest people in Australia. And... I was advising him actually about, about his marketing. Now, the truth is, he is one of the world's most successful business people. And the other truth is, he almost knows nothing about marketing with, with all due respect compared to me because it was my profession. I spent 30 years doing it, right? Yeah. But this guy was completely uh, certain that he was right, even though there was no one in the room who, who, who agreed with him and, and time showed that he was wrong. But I looked at it and I thought, isn't that amazing? The thing that made him successful is the thing that is now limiting his success now because he thinks that he knows best. So the ability to stay open, you know, as the Zen saying is, in the beginner's mind, there are many options. In the experts, only few. And as we get better, we've got to keep that beginner's mind. You know, I've been coaching now for seven years full time and I've got to constantly try and say, okay, in order to be the best coach for CEOs and entrepreneurs in the world now, what would I do? If someone was better than me, what would they do? If, if I had to 
go to a completely different level, what would I do? The problem is we are always, almost to a person, we are slowed down by our success. We, we become professional, we work out how to do the game. Mm. And once we work out how to do the game, we tend to stick and finesse to a system. Well, it becomes a heuristic, right? It's like, it's a mental shortcut. It's worked for you in the past, so you assume it's always gonna work. Like 100%. And, we, and we, we forget the passion that we brought at the founding of our company or at our career or. Yeah, yeah, and and I believe, and I'm always teaching you know the people that I mentor, that, that passion is a, is a force of the universe uh, no different from from quantum electrodynamics or, or or from gravity, it's a genuine major force of the of the universe that changes things, and I totally agree with that. People become uh, pretty slick in their processes, mm. but when the emotional component's no longer there, they they just find things don't work as well. Uh, I like this idea of the beginner's mind uh, because I think in, in some ways it applies. You know, not just to you as a leader, but to the way you design companies. And one of the great advantages of startups is that they often start with a clean sheet of paper. Yeah. And people talk about them as disruptors, but mm. to some extent, they just look at this problem fresh. Yes. Uh, often from outside the industry. Yeah. So if you're coming in, you, you're not looking at this going, how do we build a better taxi hailing system? You go, how do we solve transportation as, yes. a, as an issue? Yeah. So they're asking completely different questions, which take them to completely different places. The classic example, of course, being the railroad industry that thought it was about trains, but really it was about transport. And so it turned down uh, the opportunities to, when, when aircraft uh, began to to uh, uh, you know make uh, become become dominant forces or you know you look at blockbuster that uh, believe that they were about um, delivering uh, DVDs or, or videos whereas really they were just about delivering uh, all, all the market wanted well, was delivering content I think I said they're all about delivering late fees massive transfer of value from my, my bank account a hundred percent and look one thing I always do if I'm talking to a CEO for say a, a larger industry or successful company is I, you know you must continually try and destroy yourself you must set up pods inside your company to take yourself out because if, if you don't design that and 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 control that yourself then a, an up-and-coming kid is going to do it and where do we look if a, if a big company is trying to transform the future where does it look it can only be found inside areas of the company that people say will not work if you don't do it this way yeah. it's if it's not going to be found in a promising areas it's always going to be found in areas that no one's looking at or in the legal department the people they're trying to sue yeah exactly or the patent <laughs> trolls where people just find uh, some old patent and make it work too yeah uh, now that you've worked both in the united states and australia i mean do you think people's approach to success and company building is is culturally determined to some extent uh, do you think the way that they view companies and success here is different to other parts of the world and that's to some extent given them an advantage? Yeah, uh, I, I think so. I think the Americans absolutely, uh, uh, except failure, Sil Silicon Valley absolutely has a culture. Well, VCs actually look for failure, I think, in the people they back there. Sure, and that makes so much sense because a lot of the arrogance is taken out, uh, a lot of wisdom has been put in, and, uh, and of course, anyone uh, who is failing forward has got better as a, as a result of it. So yeah, the Americans the Americans have got that. They're I feel they're beginning to lose their their 
um, American centricness. So they're thinking much more about the rest of the world and listening much more yeah. to the rest of the world. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, you can see this sort of now with Facebook and India and like what they're doing in China. It's absolutely there's definitely an engagement, a global engagement approach now with these big tech companies. Yeah, yeah, and and you know you look at the old world that was very Eurocentric. And, it, and it, it appeared in very strange ways. So when Warren Buffett and Bill Gates flew to China for Warren's first trip, he bought, brought along his own chef so that he could have hamburgers and not have to eat Chinese food. And, and I, It's still not necessarily a bad idea. <laughs> if you've ever been to a Chinese business dinner, it's actually a sport where they try to bring the weird stuff to freak you out. <laughs> the owl's balls. <laughs> Which, yeah. and, and, and as soon as you leave, you know they're going to eat hamburgers. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Probably right. But I took that a bit of a, as a bit of a symbol that even one of the greatest business people, of growth, certainly the greatest investor of all time, uh, even he was not completely international in, in, in his view. That's changing. Yeah. And, and I think that's a great thing. And likewise, the other countries, I think, are not as intimidated by America, CEOs or entrepreneurs from other countries, as they once were, because so many uh, Indians have done so brilliantly in America, so many Australians mm. have done uh, brilliantly in America. You know, you look over the last 15 years, uh, the head of McDonald's has been Australian, the head of Coke has been Australian, the head of World Bankers has, has been Australian, current head of Taco Bell's Australian, um, uh, Dow Chemical Australian, I mean, yeah. really, have done very well in Australia. South Africans, Brits done very well. So you think America. there's almost like a new global playbook for high performance executives, which is really irrespective of culture. Very much so. Right. And, 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 a, and a, a real one, one world um, feeling in the business community that didn't exist uh, previously. But you look, look, you look at anyone, you know, if I'm coaching someone who, who is really getting places as, as a business person, what they are is learners. They're just learners. Look, the, the people listening to your podcast are learners. They want to get better. They want to get wiser. They want to get smarter. And they want to take their core software and enhance it. And, or and they're just trying to get to sleep at night. And this, is, this is a very easy way to not off. Yes, or they're, or they're, they're, they find your voice erotic and they're trying to... We don't know what they're trying to do. Do you know how hard I've worked to get a non-explicit rating on iTunes? Which is, thank you for just... <laughs> I notice you don't video your blogs and it's good reason because we're both naked here, Frank. So frankly, I'm a little uncomfortable. <laughs> Oh, that's great. I have nothing to say now. <laughs> so who, who, who do you admire now? Uh, because I asked that because, you know, I, I asked a VC and he said one of the biggest problems is, is the lack of appropriate models. Um, people say that they want to be Steve Jobs, so they try to emulate his worst characteristics. Mm. So you've got people now acting like total psychopaths and mm. you get the crazy without actually all of his genius. Mm. Mm. So who, who, who do you look up to? I mean, there's so many. I mean, uh, I mentioned Kazuo Inamori before, and he's one of my heroes for, for two reasons. A, his great success as, a, as an entrepreneur worldwide out of Japan, but also he's an ordained Buddhist priest. And he's... Really? Yeah. He's brought super high ethics and love into business and still creamed the most ambitious people in the world. You know, and and he was he's in retirement now, but he was brought out of retirement by the, the head of Japan when Japan Airlines was going under a few years ago in two thousand and eight. And he dutifully came out of retirement, completely transformed Japan Airlines and then went back into retirement. So he's a he's a real hero. But because he brings that, you know, a certain humanness uh, humanity to to the job. Yeah. And uh, I think Howard Schultz is mm. is 
uh, I'm increasingly in admiration of Howard Schultz as he matures as a as a, uh, a, a CEO, as he he looks so he's looking so deeply into the culture of his place, but also the in how his company is affecting society, not merely just trying to get an extra five percent of net profit out of it. And this holistic CEO, we're seeing more and more. You know, a lot of CEOs come to me, and they they also want to be good with their children. They also want to want to be uh, get rid of character flaws, you know. And and it's amazing how much time I'm spending with people uh, coaching them, where you would think it's just about money, but the truth is, they they want to be great. And and business was was a game park for that, but it's it's not all of them. Their self identity is not that. I think of the leading CEOs, you know, the the new age CEOs for the, who will dominate in the future. It's not. I am a business person. Is I'm someone who's seeking to be extraordinary, and and my field is is business for now. Do, do you think this cult of the of the leader is going to continue? I, I, I mean, uh, it, it just seems that we've, for a long time we 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 have that bias towards looking for heroes, mm. and we think that so much of it is actually attributable to one individual. Yeah. Um, how much just gets baked into the culture of a place, as opposed to the actions of an individual? Yeah. Well, it's really. That's, I mean, that's another great question because what we've seen is that if you look at the leaders' pay, of course, it's never been higher as a percentage versus the average uh, uh, American wage earner. But if you look at the hierarchy in major corporations, it's collapsed. Yeah. You know, it, Chrysler's uh, Gilded Tower is empty. It is literally an empty floor now because the management now is so embarrassed about the size of these of 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 these uh, worshiping rooms for their leadership, that they refuse to sit there. If you look at Alan Mulally at Ford, you know another uh, business that had decades of hierarchy, and there was he made no attempt to separate himself. He ate with the staff. He didn't uh, he he didn't create layers so anybody could talk to him. And of course, he turned around a company that was that was losing billions of dollars a year in a, in, in a three-year period. And so what we're seeing is they're still worshipped uh, to a certain extent, although you know, that's probably not the right expression, they're still greatly admired, but they themselves, the good ones, are breaking down uh, all the barriers. It, 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 it occurs in simple ways, like what they wear, but it also, you know, they're more they're more casually dressed. They're not trying to create a uh, a uniform of a king. Mm. But at the at the same time, it's uh, never has world business been as democratic as it, as it is today. Simon, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show, and of course, uh, hanging out and seeing you again. So thank you very much. It's brilliant. I really enjoyed it, and you can put your clothes back on. <laughs> You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.